Well, this morning's text introduces us to one of the most challenging verses in all of the New Testament. That is the notion and the teaching of the unforgivable sin. In fact, if I had to survey all the questions that I get on a regular basis, and I do get a lot of questions, one of the top five questions I get is, what is the unforgivable sin? And then the, the subsequent question after that is always, how do I know if I committed the unforgivable sin? That's always the challenge. So what is this? Now before we get to this, we have to consider two things when considering the unforgivable sin, and that is two concepts, two key concepts. What is sin and what is forgiveness? Sin and forgiveness. Because all of Christianity is built on these two realities and understanding these two realities. The first is that all people have sinned against God. There, is, there are no inherently good people. There's no inherently righteous person. Uh, all of us are sinful. What is sin? Well, in short, it is the violation of God's commandments. And therefore, there are no small sins to God. All of them, every sin, is detestable to God in His sight. And then the question then persists, well, what does God do with sin? How does God deal with sin? In short, He punishes every and all sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's a very serious, serious thing. But also serious is sin itself. But mark this, all sin is punished. All sin is punished. Either God punishes the person who sins, or He punishes the substitute for that sin. The only person in history who's qualified to be punished for the sins of others as a substitute is Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect one. The only one whose sacrifice and punishment is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh who came to this world and died on the cross to pay the ransom for our sins. In sacrificing Himself, God accepts not only Him and His presentation, but He accepts the sacrifice for sin. And through the sacrifice, God is able to forgive sins on a legal basis because sin's price has been paid. I think sometimes when we talk about spiritual things like this, it's easy to forget what we're talking about. I want to give you an example, a common thing that people are talking about now in the public sphere. This idea of of student loan forgiveness. Anybody heard discussion about forgiveness of student loans? Now, what we don't seem to remember is that with this idea of forgiveness, a cost has occurred because a debt has been charged. This is not funny money. This is not fake money. This is real money, a real cost, a real experience. And the only way that forgiveness can be granted is if someone pays the debt. And yes, it doesn't just disappear. Someone pays the debt. The same goes with sin. The same goes with transgression. Forgiveness is possible because Christ pays a debt. What can be done to receive this payment and God's forgiveness? Well, first you must recognize that you have sinned against God and desire both forgiveness and restoration. This is called repentance. When you agree with God about your sin, you see it His way, and you confess that sin to Him, and you ask for forgiveness. But secondly, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone for your salvation. And when you confess your sins to God, 1 John 1.9 tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. That is a marvelous, marvelous promise. And your sins, according to Isaiah 118, although they are scarlet, are there they are blood red, they will be made white as snow. Cleansed. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. And so God's forgiveness is both fully purifying and cleansing, but also completely removing with regard to sin. He takes it away. Colossians 2.14 talks about how Christ has taken away our penalty of sin and nailed it to His own cross. And so, how, how many sins or how much sin? And the answer is, all sin, any sin, completely, eternally. There are no vestigial sins that just kind of hang out there awaiting atonement. All sin is paid for in the sacrifice of Christ to those who love Him and who trust in Him. Yet, Jesus teaches about a sin that cannot be forgiven. Now wait a second, I just said that all any sin can be forgiven and is forgiven in Christ. What is this sin that cannot be forgiven? Turn to Matthew chapter 12 in your copy of Scripture with me. Matthew chapter 12. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12 drops us in here. A front row seat, really, to the showdown between the Pharisees of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They were the religious and social and political elite of all of Israel. And here they are attacking Jesus for supposedly violating Sabbath law. Now certainly there were laws about the Sabbath, uh, the day of rest, if you will, And the Pharisees, however, had added their own man-made laws to the biblical laws, and they expected everybody, including Jesus, to follow these man-made laws. But Jesus isn't having any of it. In fact, he makes a point to correct the misunderstanding about these laws. And then he proves to everyone that not only is he the Lord of the Sabbath, he invented the Sabbath rest He's the Lord of it. He can tell people what to do and what not to do because He is the Creator of all things. Not only is He the Lord of the Sabbath, but He's also God in human flesh who came to save His people. He exercises authority and dominance as the Creator God. And He's sovereign. And there's a key moment here where He displays this glory. It comes in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 30. We saw that recently. He deals with this man who's demon-possessed who's also blind and also mute. He's terribly afflicted. In this miracle, he astounds the crowd by by removing the demon, certainly, but also giving this man sight and speech. And verse 23 records that all the crowds were amazed. Literally, in the Greek, if you were to render it out, they they were struck and knocked out of place. They were just thrown back by this remarkable miracle. It's undeniable. It's irrefutable. Where this power is coming from, all the people are convinced in that moment, this is something special. This must, and they even ask the question, this can't be the son of David, can it? And really, the, the question is, is this really the Messiah? It, it has to be. That's the only logical conclusion. This is the son of David, the, the prophesied Messiah, the anointed one, coming to save his people. Who else could it be? It's so obvious to the people but not to the Pharisees. And despite the fact that the miracle is unquestionably the work of God, they attribute Jesus' power to that of Satan. 
that somehow Jesus healed this poor man by the power of Satan. And that Jesus explains in, look at verse 26, he says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then can his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul, which is Satan, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? And so Jesus is giving explanation. He completely destroys their argument. However, it's more than about winning an argument for Jesus. He's not just here to score points in the public sphere and virtue signal. That's not what he's doing. What's front and center here, and what's on full display, is the Pharisees' stubborn refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so based on that, we read this, starting in verse 30. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man, out of his good treasure, uh, brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account of it on the day of judgment. But for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned." Now last week we, we looked at this polemical statement in verse 30 where Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather scatters. It's definitive. I mean, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's making a direct statement, a direct accusation. It's almost an ultimatum. Look, there, there's only two choices here. Either you're with me and you're on my side and you're in me and you believe in me and you trust in me and you love me or you're against me and you hate me and you're, you're condemned. There's no middle way. I'll tell you, popular culture, popular Christianity likes to sort of traffic in this middle way. That somehow we can have friendship with the world and still have friendship and amiability with God. But the Bible teaches us plainly, if you have friendship with the world, you're an enemy of God. God hates the system of the world. He hates what, the philosophy behind it. He hates the, the morality, the lack of morality, the, the ethics, all of the, the things that we see proffered today God hates anything that's set up against him. And Paul even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we actually wage war against those philosophies and ideologies that wage war against God. It's not the people it's themselves, it's the philosophy. It's the ideals, it's the arguments, it's the, the system of thought. So Jesus is making a very definitive statement, either you're with me or against me. That's, it's plain as day. Again, it's reminiscent of Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives only two ways, the way of life and the way of destruction. He's been doing this the whole time. He says, either you're with me or you're against me. No middle way. It's life or death, heaven or hell, regeneration or condemnation, Christ or Satan. 
And how do you know which side you're on? Because I, I make all these statements and you might be sitting there thinking, well, gee whiz, I hope I'm on the right side here. I'm not so sure. How do you know? It all depends on your relationship to God through Christ. Are your sins forgiven by God through sincere repentance and faith? Or are you condemned because of the hardness of your own heart? See, the Pharisees, they were demonstrating nothing but hatred for Christ, which leads Jesus to the conclusion in verse 31 and 32. He says, therefore, now therefore is built on something, isn't it? He's seeing all of their, the demonstration of the hardness of their heart, and they're demonstrating that they're against him. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come." Now, in these two verses, Jesus is talking about two realities stated two different ways. He sets up two columns of terms, if you will. There are those whose sins are forgiven, and there are those whose sins are not forgiven. And in verse 31, Jesus draws attention to what he's about to say. Therefore, I say to you. It's it's a statement of intentionality. Pay attention. Therefore, I say. Listen. Then he comes to the first reality here. He said, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. So that's statement number one. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Again, this word sin in the Greek is hamartia. And really it's a transgression. It literally means to miss the mark of the standard of God's righteousness. But it's a transgression. It's a, it's a failure. It's an exercise in moral rebellion against God. It's a general term that that refers to all the sins listed in the Bible. You you read the Bible cover to cover, you see every possible sin that there could be, every transgression, every violation of commandment, and all of that is sin. So Jesus says every and all sin, and then he sort of zeroes in on one in particular. Sort of the most heinous of them all, if you will. He adds to this general statement the sin of blasphemy. Blasphemy. In the Greek, it's literally blasphemia. And the question is, what is blasphemy? You hear that word in popular culture, and it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But what is blasphemy? Some people have defined it as sort of defiant arrogance or irreverence or derogatory speech. But in biblical category, it's far more narrow. It pertains to defiant, derogatory, or even slanderous speech against God. That's what it pertains to. And it comes in many forms. Many forms. And I'll tell you, friends, we don't talk about blasphemy very much at all today. And we should. On the most basic level, blasphemy includes taking the Lord's name in vain. This is the third commandment, if you will. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, to take the Lord's name in vain, this is really an irreverent, thoughtless or slanderous use of God's holy name. And the most common way that we see this today is when people use God's name as a place filler without even thinking about it. People will say the phrase, oh my God, as a place filler and not as a genuine cry to the Heavenly Father. 
It's one thing if you cry out to God and you say, oh my God, and it's oh as in astonishment, my as in personal, you are my because of my relationship, and God, you are the sovereign. That's one thing. But to utter that phrase simply as a way to pass the time in your sentence is taking his name in vain. Some people take it a step further. And they'll even use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word. And I've even heard people put other words in the middle of Jesus and Christ. And they'll use his name out of their mouth to curse or to utter some kind of a of a, of a derogatory statement. It's as if stubbing your toe isn't bad enough. You have to curse the name of God when you hurt yourself. It's a blasphemy. And the Bible teaches that God hates it. He hates it. However, the most damnable blasphemy is when a person would actually curse God directly and shake their fist at Him. And you, you get filled with so much rage and anger that you just your heart would desire to murder God in your anger. That, my friends, is blasphemy of the highest sort. Yet Jesus declares, and this is remarkable, Jesus declares that any sin and even blasphemy shall be forgiven, obviously as a result of repentance. Blasphemy will even be forgiven. And then Jesus in verse 32 offers another statement about this sin, the person whose sins are forgiven. He notes in the second half, or excuse me, the first half of verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven. Now, scholars have wrestled with this. They've wrestled and tangled with this. And many have arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is referring to people in his own day who sin against him directly. So remember, Jesus is God in human flesh. He's God incarnate, the very person of the second person, the Trinity, God, walking around on earth in a human body, talking to people and interacting with people. So they don't even know who he is, however. He looks like any other man. And people would have cursed him and slandered him to his face. They did it all the time. Even his own family said slanderous and irreverent things against him. But because nobody would tend to think that God would forgive that kind of sin, except the sin of walking right up to the Son of Man, the Messiah, and cursing Him. I mean, you'd think that, well, that, that's got to be the only sin that you, you just can't commit that. You can't walk up to Jesus and cuss Him out. That, that can't be forgiven, right? But He says, even that will be forgiven. Can you fathom that? Can you imagine walking up to Jesus Christ, spitting in His face, slapping Him, and cursing Him out? That's what they did. The soldiers, the people in the market square. I mean, we we celebrate Palm Sunday, the praising of the Lord, Hosanna, save now, save now, glorifying Him in the streets. And then a few days later, they're calling for His head. They're calling for Him to be crucified. And Barabbas, the, the traitorous villain, the terrorist, they want Him to be released. So Jesus goes and dies on the cross. What a shift in the perspective. But can you fathom? But Jesus says, even that can be forgiven. And we see examples of this in Jesus' own group, don't we? Peter, our friend Peter, in Matthew 16, he makes this beautiful, wonderful profession. You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he revealed this to you. And then a couple verses later, Peter mouths off to him and rebukes him for daring to go to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. How dare you talk to me like that and profess to know the will of God and try to redirect me away from the will of God? Get behind me, Satan. Even on the night of his betrayal, when Jesus is going to the cross, before that, Peter, who, who professed the night before how much he loved Jesus and how I would die for you, he even took up a sword at one point and tried to attack Malchus, the, the, the servant of one of the priests, and cut off his ear, and he even attacked this, a soldier. Like, Peter, are you insane? But yet... Within a couple of hours, Peter denies even knowing the Lord, and then the Bible says he even cursed. Three times he denied knowing his best friend and cursed. Then he heard a rooster crow and fled into the night, weeping bitterly. But yet what happens in John 21? Can you imagine facing Jesus that morning at breakfast? Sitting across from him, The elephant is in the room, if you will. What is he going to say? I shouldn't even be here. I should be gone. And yet, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Then what does he do? He puts him into ministry. Feed my sheep. Three times he restores him. Three times he forgives him. I can't fathom that, can you? The Apostle Paul persecuted and killed Christians and then he professed in 1 Timothy 1.13, though I was formerly, what does he start off with? A blasphemer. I cursed God as a religious man. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet he says, I was shown mercy. Why, Paul? Why were you shown mercy? He says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know any better. I didn't know what I was doing. I was cursing the living God and I had no idea. I was showed mercy because I acted in ignorance. What about those who actually hurled abuse and cursed Christ when He was on the cross? What did He do? Did He call out to them and say, shame on you, woe to you, do you have any idea who I am? No. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus intercedes and pleads with the Father to forgive them of their sins of blaspheming the Son of Man. I I can't conceptualize that humanly. My sins are bad enough. I'm sure yours are pretty bad too. But can you fathom that? Seeing His face and cursing Him. And yet, He asks for forgiveness. And so He notes that all sins can be forgiven. That is except this one in verse 31. All sin, all blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. What is this? Blasphemy against the Spirit. At first glance, it seems kind of odd that God would forgive blasphemy against the Son, but then not against the Holy Spirit. But if you look a little closer at the context of what's going on in the passage, we've been here for quite a while. What's going on around these verses? What's happening in the situation, in the interactions, in the discussion? What's going on? I think we have some help here. 
I want you to follow the story with me. Jesus has been teaching about the law of God, and the Pharisees are rejecting it. They're just rejecting it. And then they don't really know who Jesus is. They can claim ignorance, supposedly, right? I mean, if you didn't know who this man was he was teaching, you could claim not to know. But then he goes and heals a man on the Sabbath. It's a miracle. He heals a man on the Sabbath. Now, again, a skeptic would try to pass this off as a parlor trick. Well, I know he's a good teacher, and he, he understands the Bible. I know I just saw him heal a guy with a withered hand, but, you know, I've seen our magicians do that kind of stuff. I've seen, I've seen some trickery. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just not what we think it is. But that's not where they end. They go a step further. They go a step further. Verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. You don't conspire to destroy somebody unless you think you know who they are and what they're doing. They're not ignorant. They know better, and yet they're purposing in their hearts and conspiring together to destroy Jesus. We see them hardening their own heart. They become bitter. They become hardened like stone. And then... Jesus performs another miracle so awe-inspiring that the crowds, they stand shocked in amazement. Now at this point, it's gone beyond Jesus' own words. This is another level now. Now you're seeing this beyond his perceivable abilities to heal. Now you're seeing a divine miracle that is recognized by all the crowds as being a divine miracle. To the point where all the crowds have no choice but to conclude, this must be the Messiah. They they don't have any divine revelation beyond that. They've heard his teaching, they've seen the miracles, and their logical conclusion, he's the son of God. He's the son of David, he's the anointed one, he's the savior. It's got to be. This could only be done by the spirit of God in Luke 11.20, by the finger of God. This has to be God reaching down from heaven through this man, Jesus, to heal this man. That's the only possible explanation. But to deny what is plainly in front of you is foolish. So they're foolish, but they take their own hard-heartedness a step further. They don't just stop there at foolishness, at ignorance. They don't just stop at, at not seeing what everybody else sees. No, what do they do? They go a step even beyond that in their hardness of heart. They actually attribute what is plainly seen as the work of God, they attribute that work to Satan, the devil. This is the height of sinful rebellion. When you know better, you know better. The kids playing in the street, they see it, they know better. The ones that don't have normal intelligence, they know better. Everybody knows better. Except these Pharisees. They rebelled. And so, in the most technical sense, blasphemy of the Spirit, in context here, is the Pharisees' attribution of the work of God to the power of Satan. They take what is holy and wonderful and beautiful and glorious and remarkable and marvelous about God and they bring it down to the pit and the sludge and the slime and the vindictiveness and the wretchedness of Satan and they say that work was done by that creature. That is awful. But that was their hardness of heart. 
And Jesus, at the end of all of that, this isn't a one-and-done thing, at the end of all of these evidences of their own hardness of heart and rejection and attribution of God to Satan, Jesus finally says, if you do that, that's unforgivable. You can curse me and spit in my face, and I'll love you and forgive you. But you curse the Father by the work of the Spirit and attribute that to Satan, that's unforgivable. Either in this age or in the age to come, at the judgment. This brings eternal condemnation. Now, again, many scholars are quick to note that this sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is unique to the Pharisees and cannot be duplicated today. And I would concur with that because there's no way for all of us living in this day and age to actually witness what Jesus did And for us to possibly attribute what we have seen with our own two eyes to the work of Satan. There's no way to do what the Pharisees did. It was a once in that period of time. So on a technical level, blaspheming the Holy Spirit in this way is impossible for us. And I want to comfort you with something. You can't just trip and fall and commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not possible to accidentally, accidentally commit the unforgivable sin. That's what people get scared of. Well, I love Jesus, but I don't want to have a bad day and commit this sin that's unforgivable. Take heart, beloved, take heart. This is not something that you're going to do against your own will. You won't do what the Pharisees did in that situation. However, I do think there is application, application for us today. Because again, one might be tempted to ask, now wait a second, couldn't the Pharisees have been forgiven for such a sin? I mean, I know we're saying it's the unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin, but isn't it possible they could be forgiven? Is it on a technicality? After all, Pharisees like Nicodemus and even Saul of Tarsus, Paul, certainly they repented, they trusted in Christ, they were forgiven. Well, the explanation, I believe, comes in verses 33 to 37. Uh, When you read your Bible... Oftentimes, study Bibles, they break up these passages into headings. And some of your Bibles might have a break after verse 32, and it moves on to a new heading of the content in verse 33. And there's certainly some warrant for that. But I really believe when you examine the text, what happens in verses 33 to 37 help explain what he said in verses 31 and 32. These are all built together. There's a whole narrative and there's a whole argument that Jesus is making in the context here. So this is helpful. Everything has to do with what's going on inside of their hearts. Again, what's going on inside of their hearts. It's not that Jesus will nail you on a technicality. Oops, you committed the unforgivable sin. Sorry, no grace for you. That's not what's going on here. You have to see this. Verse 33. Jesus continues and he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. And then he says, for the tree is known by its fruit. This is what is known as an axiom, a self-evident truth, something that makes total and clear sense to us, right? Everybody understands this. If you have a good and healthy tree, it will produce good and healthy fruit, right? You You get good apples from a good tree. However, if you have a bad tree, a diseased tree, It's either going to produce no fruit at all or it's going to produce really bad fruit. And so a good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. 
You can generally tell what kind of a tree it is by the quality of fruit it produces. Jesus actually reasons this way in Matthew chapter 7 regarding false teachers. Just listen to this. Jesus says this about false teachers. You will know them by their fruits. Then he argues, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree, then he warns, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them, teachers, false teachers, by their fruit. You will know. He flat out says it. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. Then he applies this axiomatic truth, this self-evident truth, to the Pharisees in verse 34. Look at verse 34. Jesus is making a judgment. You brood of vipers. Let that hang for a second in your mind. At this point, they've called him every name in the book, even Satan, and he hasn't responded yet, has he? Have you noticed that? He hasn't really said anything to them. He, in fact, he even says, well, I'll let, your, I'll let your, your sons be your judges. I'm not going to judge you for that. I'll let them deal with you. But now that he's gotten all the way this far, and he's talked about their sins that they've committed, he makes a judgment here on them. You brood of vipers. How can you, here's the judgment, being evil? He tells them what they really are. They're evil. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? Well, how does he know? From the mouth speaks, or for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Brood of vipers is a, a den of snakes. That would have been a terrible insult back then. Even, even now, I mean, you call someone a snake. There's some imagery there, isn't there? It's this slimy, conniving, backbiting, trickerous person, Right? I mean, that's, that's not the kind of person you want to be called. You want to be called a snake. That's what he calls them. But then he asked the rhetorical question, how can you being evil, how can you being evil speak what is good? That's not a question, by the way. That's an indictment. That's an indictment. That's rhetorical. He looks into their hearts and he sees what's really going on inside. Because he knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. He knows their intentions. He knows everything about them. He sees them for what they really are. And he looks into their heart. Not only does he see no faith, he sees nothing but wickedness. And that's what they are. They're wicked to the core. Their tree, my friends, is bad. Their tree is bad. And then he makes note of the fruit. Now, there's many kinds of spiritual fruit. But here he seizes on their words. Because that's what they've done so far. They haven't walked up and punched him in the face. They haven't walked up and persecuted him physically, have they? All they've done is they've blasphemed him and slandered him. So it's been their words that have been the sin. Later on, they're going to haul him out and kill him. But right now, it's their words. Their words. He says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Out of your heart, your mouth speaks. What you say is a reflection on some level to what's going on inside of you. Your mouth will demonstrate your heart. And then Jesus elaborates in 35. He says, The good man, out of his good treasure, or excuse me, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. 
This sounds very much like the truth of verse 33, really restated and personalized now. He's bringing this truth full circle. And what he's talking about, again, is the person's heart. Again, a good heart is full of good treasure and will produce good words and good deeds. An evil heart, full of evil treasure, will produce evil words and evil deeds. Now, he's not talking about what is in you that is savable. He's not saying that if you're a good person, you'll be saved. That's not the truth. Because he says elsewhere that you're commanded to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And all of us look around the room and we look at ourselves and we say, I'm not perfect. If you follow Paul's logic in Romans 7, he says, wretched man that I am. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst one. So Jesus is not talking about works righteousness. We're going to see he's talking about faith and belief and trust in him. And again, the the fruit imagery is simply just a picture to demonstrate what's really inside the heart. It's a word picture here. But based on that, he gives this sober warning in verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, this warning pertains to speech. He tells them every careless word will be accounted for. Everything you say, beloved, the Greek word for careless is argos. It has to do with the idea of being useless or unproductive or worthless. So every word will be accounted for. How many words have you spoken in your lifetime? How many of them were good? How many of them were bad? How many words were in your mind and in your heart that you didn't want to speak because you knew what it was going to do? If I say that thing, they'll be mad at me. But you still thought that, you still felt that in your heart, right? So if God in in the last judgment opens up all the books and sort of downloads all of your words spoken to other people, all of your words spoken to God Himself, all of the words and thoughts that are spoken in your own heart, what will happen? The Bible says you'll have to give an account. And this demonstrates simply by words alone. Forget deeds for just a second. He hasn't even talked about deeds yet what we actually do. But based on the words alone, this demonstrates the breadth and depth of God's judgment. In fact, Revelation 12, or, or 20 verse 12 says that our deeds are judged too. James goes even farther and says uh, that he warns that our, our tongues, our tongues can be set on fire, the fire of hell, and he condemns us. Or, or our tongues can condemn us in our sin. So, Imagine this for a second. Technically speaking, even if you never did a bad deed your whole life, and there are people out there who live an upright, upstanding life in the world, the Bible says you could be condemned by your words alone. And then you might say, well, yeah, but they're a really nice guy. They never say anything. They never curse. They never swear. They never say anything nasty. What about the words inside your heart? The Bible says that all of us, all of us have sinned. All of us, their heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Follow this. Your deeds and your words all proceed from what is inside your heart. 
And so even if by outward appearances, if your heart is not regenerate, if you don't belong to God, if you are wicked and sinful, then even your words will be enough to condemn you. That's why Paul exhorts believers in Ephesians 4.29. He tells the church, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Beloved, when you speak to other people, do you speak in such a way that it will give grace to those who hear? Are other people edified and built up and ingratiated to you based on the things that you say? What you think is what you say, and what you say reflects what you believe. But again, this is why it's so important what we say in our profession. This is the stress in Romans 10, 9. On the other side of it, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. Saved. He connects speech to heart here. That what happens inside your heart through faith is what you're going to confess. The word credo. We talk about creeds and confessions, but the word creed comes from credo. Credo means I believe. So what you believe inside your heart is what you're going to confess. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. There's a lot bound up in Jesus is Lord, isn't there? But you confess Christ and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's Lord of your life. You believe that, you're saved. What's the big idea here? You confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart. And so if your heart is full of love for God, and trust in God, and repentance over sin, and a desire and affections for Christ, what are you going to say? Your speech is going to reflect what you believe. It should. And when it doesn't, again, your heart takes over and you confess. And you get right with God with your words. So we've gone a long way here. How does this connect to the unforgivable sin? I bet you some of you forgot we were even talking about the unforgivable sin, didn't we? There's a connection here. With their mouths, the Pharisees had cursed Christ. Now again, he said that would be forgivable. But he's telling them that they're going to have to answer for those words. Since the mouth speaks out of that which is in the heart, and their outward blasphemy reveals an inward blasphemy. They didn't just say it because they made a mistake. I'm having a bad day. It wasn't like that. This was a deliberate, pointed attack on Jesus Christ and on God the Father for that added. By their words, they demonstrated that they had no love for God whatsoever. They professed to know God, but by their words, they even denied Him. They claimed to be the most religious people in all of Israel. You want to get to God? Talk to us. We'll help you. Come to the temple. Bring your sacrifices. Bring your money. We'll get you in. They professed to know God, but Jesus says you have no idea because your heart is evil. It was their heart, their faithlessness, and their lovelessness toward God to the point where you'd even blaspheme Christ. That's unforgivable. Your heart can't be dead and be saved. Their sins were unforgiven, all of them, because their hearts were stubborn and unbelieving. 
So what is the unforgivable sin? It is a heart that does not and will not believe in Christ no matter the evidence, no matter the argument, no matter the revelation, no matter what God does to bless, they will not believe. And that was the Pharisees. And so if you have a heart that is just stubborn, if you're clenching your fists and you're saying, I will not believe. In fact, not only will I not believe, I hate the one who told me to repent. If that's your hardness of heart, then there's no forgiveness for that sin. However, here's good news. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, why? Because you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. What are we celebrating next Sunday? That reality, that truth. That God raised Him from the dead in victory, in life, for forgiveness of sins, for payment for sins. As the firstborn from the dead to be our champion of salvation and the imputation of our righteousness found in Him. If you believe that, you're saved. That's, that's the totality of the heart of your confession. I believe Christ. He's my righteousness. He says, for the, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And you say, I don't have much right now. I don't think I'm a great Christian. I struggle with my Bible reading. My prayer life's not too great. I struggle in my marriage. I struggle with my family. But you know what? At the end of the day, I really do love Christ. And I want Him to change me and save me and redeem me. He has. Now let Him work. And the Bible says He will work in you and through you by the ministry of the Spirit of God. And then you begin to obey. And then you begin to live your life in response to His grace. And then what he begins to do is he begins to change your speech and change your heart and change your actions and give you a love for his word and give you a language for your prayer, scriptural language, I might add. And he gives you a desire for him. And that is what begins to prove that the tree he's planted in you is a good tree that bears good fruit. So my friends, you will not just trip and stumble and fall into committing the unforgivable sin. Encourage your hearts with that. If you love Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you trust in Him, your sins are forgiven. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. And how is He just? How does He demonstrate the justice of that? He has Christ here. It's an acceptable sacrifice. And He imputes or credits all of our sinfulness on to Christ, and Christ dies in our place as a substitute, and then imputes and credits the righteousness of Christ to us that we put on like a garment. And we're presented before the Father, wrapped in the robe of Christ's righteousness, and we're accepted. And he says, welcome home. Confess your sins to God, and they will be forgiven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His sacrifice, His death, His resurrection, and you will be saved. There's a lot to the Christian life, but it's really that simple. Confess and believe, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are a just and righteous and holy God. 
that there is no impurity found in you, that there is no unrighteousness in you. There is only perfection in you. And Lord, as we consider the sins of the tongue and the sins of the heart, Lord, You know what's going on inside the heart of every person here. And I pray that You would examine and bring about and grant them repentance if there is sin that has not been forgiven yet. That Your people would confess their sins to You. And even those who are not yet Your people, if there are those who are here and listening and don't know You, if they've never trusted in You, if they're not sure if they're going to heaven when they die, if they're not sure of what they believe and what they think, I pray that You would convict them of their sins against You and give them a desire. Plant this seed of this good tree in them. Give them faith that they might confess, Jesus, You are my Lord, and I believe in You, and I trust in You. And the only way I'm getting to heaven is if You bring me. I trust You. Lord, I pray that that is the confession of every person here today. And Lord, I pray also that as Hebrews says, that we would not harden our hearts like those in the days of the rebellion, that they turn their hearts away from God in the wilderness of sin, that the Pharisees in Israel, they turn their hearts away from You. I pray that You would grant us all softened hearts, that we would not turn away. And God, maybe there's somebody who is running from you right now. Maybe this is the first time they've ever heard this. I pray that you would grab them right now, Lord. Convict them of their sin, but then comfort them with repentance and with forgiveness of sins and show them the way home through Christ. I pray this right now in Jesus' name. Amen.